Hello everyone and welcome to Pull Quotes. Lately, we've seen journalism being taken beyond the written word, beyond a news broadcast or a digital article, all in the hopes of getting new engagement. Maybe that engagement is with a younger audience, or maybe it's a way to enhance the reader experience to get closer to a story. Well, today's guests have both been a part of doing just that. Adrian Ma is a professor here at the Ryerson School of Journalism, who in 2020 started to introduce virtual reality and 360 video storytelling into his advanced multimedia course. He is also writing a textbook about this form of media. Welcome, Adrian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So how did you get involved in shooting 360 video and virtual reality? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I've been interested in immersive video for a while now. Um, so even as far back uh, a few years ago, I started playing around with this this beta program uh, called Google uh, Story Spheres, where you just shot like a basic panorama on your phone, but then we're able to kind of overlay audio and maybe hotspots and, and kind of create little interactive experiences. And then I started seeing more 360 video pop up being produced by, by news outlets. At the time, I didn't think much of it because it was such a specialized area. Uh, the, the equipment that you needed was really expensive. It was crazy, right? They had like, you know, rigs of like 16 GoPro cameras. You'd have to do hours and hours of stitching. So at that time, I, I didn't see myself really doing much with that. But then, you know, like with most technology, a funny thing happens. Uh, it starts getting cheaper and starts getting better and more efficient. And suddenly we started seeing... Uh, 360 cameras that were affordable and agile and really cut down on, on the production aspects. And that's when I thought, okay, let's try a few things here. And so the opportunity in 2018 came up. I was leading a summer course to Hong Kong, which was a, an amazing trip. Um, but I thought about from a storytelling perspective, uh, you know, if you're just using kind of traditional flat video or flat photo, you kind of get one, one angle of, of this city. And if you've ever been to Hong Kong, it is a breathtakingly kind of magically beautiful and complex and incredibly diverse city. And I just kind of envisioned this scenario where why don't we, you know, if we could tell stories using a 360 camera, you really get, you know, so much of the the sensory feeling of being there. It's such a it's such an intriguing place. Um, so um, we applied for a bit of uh, funding and we're able to develop a partnership with uh, the collaboratory at Ryerson, which which had a couple different 360 cameras. We bought some other ones, and we so we went there with this big experiment, not really having done any 360 video in our program before, and we were just really thrilled with how it turned out. We we started with two videos. One video was um, a kind of uh, look at Hong Kong street food culture. The Hong Kong street food culture, how, how visual it is, how much of an experience it is. And so there's one video that looked at that and, and the kind of decline of, of, of street food culture. The other one, uh, which was an amazing experience. Uh, so Hong Kong is, is the only place in China where you're, you're basically allowed to kind of publicly demonstrate. Um, although, you know, we, we've seen some interesting developments there in, in, in recent months. But uh, every every June, they have a candlelit vigil to commemorate what happened at uh, Tiananmen in um, uh, all, all those decades ago. And so uh, we took a 360 camera in there to kind of give people who have never been there just a chance to kind of feel like they're part of the crowd and, and, and see what's happening. And as far as we know, we were the first ever uh, journalist to bring a 360 camera into that and create a video around it. And on that note of talking about Hong Kong, full disclosure here, I went with Adrian the following year when you did the 360 course again, yeah. and yeah. which was an amazing experience. And we were able to shoot 
a documentary about fishing villages in Hong Kong, and I get I think my favorite scene is hmm. like us on the boat um, going to these fishing villages, navigating through that space. And that must have been an experience that you never kind of had before. Exactly, right. and like making those decisions of how to shoot and and like what what the entire scene is going to be like all the way around you was a big element of, of what we had to think about when we were and doing I'm that process. And I'm very different than if you were to approach it like a, a traditional kind of broadcast journalist. Exactly. Right? There's no close shot. There's no medium shot. It wasn't that sort of idea. Like we had to think about all different all different elements. Um, so my next question for you would be, you know, how how prevalent is this form of journalism? Like you mentioned that some news organizations have used it, but, you know, how how... How often are we actually using it today? I would say not very. So there was a lot more energy, I think, and appetite for this a couple of years ago. Uh, that's when you saw a lot of newsrooms really kind of get interested in, in 360 because suddenly it wasn't just the ability to produce 360 videos. It was the ability to uh, host them in a large scale way. So YouTube and Vimeo, Facebook uh, added 360 capability to their videos. But um, headsets became cheaper. Uh, you know, Google Cardboards became, you know, uh, ubiquitous. Smartphones became, you know, more powerful. And so it all kind of led to this moment a few years ago where, yeah, you saw tons of newsroom newsrooms get really curious about this and invest you know, some resources into doing it. So New York Times had come up with this whole project where they shot like a 360 video um, every day for like a year. Uh, BBC launched a, a VR labs. Uh, the Guardian did tons of really interesting work uh, experimenting with, with um, you know, 360 VR video. And so there was a lot of energy for that a couple of years ago. And you may have noticed that that's kind of slowed down a little bit, I've, I've found, you know, especially looking at examples and, and the kind of work that, that's being done. Um, and so I think we're at an interesting point right now where, okay, we, we've examined different types of journalism we can do, and it seems like it applies to a lot of different kinds of storytelling, which is really cool. So I think you've seen a, a kind of slowdown, and, and, and news companies and studios are kind of pulling back a little bit on this. I mean, uh, the BBC just, I think, announced they're shutting down their uh, VR studio lab um, recently. Um, what are some of the ethical considerations when developing 360 video and virtual reality content? Great question. So much, so much. <laughs> You know, anytime you introduce a new technology, uh, you're obviously you're obviously confronted with with some some new issues. So, first, you know, uh, top of mind for me is privacy. Um, with 360 cameras, you are filming in every single direction. Even you're filming in public, and you may have the intention of getting something specific, but you don't quite know exactly what's happening in every single angle uh, of, of 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 this frameless video. So you have to be, I think, extra careful and extra extra cautious about exactly what you're what you're capturing and people may not realize they're being filmed the cameras that come out these days uh, part of what makes it really exciting is that before you had these gigantic behemoth you know again 16 camera rigs 24 camera rigs that were just quite obvious that you know something was there shooting and recording something and now you have cameras that fit in your pocket and they shoot really well they shoot really high quality video they're super agile but you won't even really know it's there if, if you just kind of set it up and kind of the nature of 360 filming a lot of times is you set the camera up and you walk away from it and you just try and capture a scene um, so you can kind of give someone the perspective of being there, which which means trying to remove yourself from from operating that camera. Now, people can walk by this and have no idea they're being filmed. Uh, I think questions about privacy and surveillance, I think there's legitimate concerns about how surveyed we are um, and 
how we're, we're being kind of monitored all the time. And I think, you know, when, when you're producing 360 content, you have to be kind of hyper aware of what you're capturing and also the context of what you're capturing. Uh, when you're in a, you know, reporting on a sensitive story, uh, suddenly people may not realize uh, that you're filming and don't have the option to kind of get out of the shot. Because you know mm-hmm. when you have a broadcast camera, lighting kit, you know, it's pretty obvious you're shooting a video. People can kind of steer clear of that space if, if they really want to. But it's it's less obvious with a 360 camera. Definitely. And and in the class that you teach now, and you're kind of incorporating teaching some of these techniques to students, but you've also mentioned that people aren't necessarily, like news organizations are kind of rethinking how they might use this technology. So what are some of the things that you're teaching students and in, in how they can use this in their work? Yeah, that's a great question. So... You know, I, I try and take a very experimental approach. I mean, so we're kind of playing around with different uh, different platforms and programs to use um, that, to me, uh, what, what's very interesting is can we, ha- you know, does it have to be either or? Does it have to be just 360 VR or flat video? So I think one of the cool benefits of some of these new cameras is that they shoot really well um, for 360, but they also shoot uh, flat video really well too. So there's an interesting kind of workflow opportunity there where maybe you're just out with this single camera gathering 360 video, but then you can cut whatever you want from it. You can cut you know, traditional video from it. So there's, a, there's kind of that aspect to it. And I think there are certain programs that you can use now um, that we're experimenting with that allow you to toggle between 360 video and flat video, so you can have the benefit of both experiences. Um, whereas I think the kind of approach before was, you know, how do we how do we tell a story in 360? Whereas now it could be, well, how do we just kind of optimize the scene so that we're shooting uh, this particular aspect of the story in the way that it really should be shot and presented? And I think there's kind of a lot more potential with this sort of medium as an immersive medium. Uh, to to move away from maybe kind of straight up reporting or straight up documentary into more hybrid forms of storytelling. So I think, uh, you know, using animations and simulations and different ways of presenting, let's say, artwork or or concepts. um, I think seeing some of those things really sparked an interest in me in, um, you know, I I think the capability of this technology goes far beyond just kind of uh, a straightforward news story. I, I think... Creating, uh, focusing on the immersive aspects of uh, the experiences is something that I'd like to really kind of go deeper into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned before that you're writing a textbook about all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and the work that's gone into that? It's really cool. We uh, were able to uh, secure a grant. It's going to be an open education resource, so anyone can access it and use whatever they want from it. It's, uh, it's being co-authored by myself, uh, Gary Gould, uh, Joshua Cameron, and we've had some research assistance from. Adam Chen, who you're going to have on the show later, yeah. and Stephanie Liu, um, who, you know, we we just kind of uh, looked at some best practices for shooting these kinds of stories. And uh, based on kind of our experimentations with the Hong Kong course, with the course I'm doing now, just trying to pull together a accessible resource that people can use to get started in What's what's a you know uh, what's what's a pretty cool and, and and fun medium that I think has a lot of potential um, to uh, to engage people. Yeah, definitely. Now, on the note of where things are going in the future, what do you see for the future of AR and 360 video? Big, big question. Yeah. Big time question. (laughs) Yeah, so having just said that, yeah, so, you know, VR hasn't quite kind of popped the way that we thought it would. I still absolutely see value in in pursuing 360 video and and VR. I think 
my suspicion as to what happens is 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 I have a couple thoughts on this. One, we kind of have to see where the technology goes with this. So I think one prevailing theory, uh, besides you know the fact that VR headsets, like really good ones, um, not not just like cardboard ones, but like really good ones like the um, Oculus Quest, um, are still maybe at a price point that a lot of people aren't uh, willing to to pay for. Um, but there's also the idea that VR is kind of an isolating experience in a lot of ways. If you have a headset using at home. Um, how often are people going to kind of strap it on and spend, you know, an hour looking at VR content? Mm-hmm. And I find that, you know, with people that do enjoy VR, uh, especially for gaming purposes, yeah, that's a completely kind of natural sort of behavior for them. But, uh, you know, for that kind of mass adoption, maybe it's in a way a bit too much of an isolating experience. So this is where I think there's some interesting work uh, being done in the idea of mixed reality. So can you combine uh, virtual reality with a live experience, a physical experience? Perhaps it's something that, let's say, uh, younger audiences, like maybe millennial audiences, are more willing to pay for a communal collective experience versus a kind of isolated experience with a headset. So perhaps the future, you know, the, the more, the more, the most intriguing. Um, kind of future for VR journalism could be as part of uh, a live journalism event, uh, like a physical kind of exhibition event. Um, I think those are avenues that are, are, are really ripe to explore. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure. is a graduate of Ryerson's Masters of Journalism program, and he is also starting his own live journalism startup, Talk Media. And full disclosure here, I have been working with Adam as part of my thesis for my own master's. In March, Stitched, a live journalism lab at The Catalyst, run by Sonia Fatter, in partnership with Talk Media, will be helping me coordinate my own live journalism performance, which is part of the reason why I was really interested about talking to Adam, who's been researching this for over a year. So welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, So Adam, can you tell us what live journalism is and give us an example of a live journalism story? Sure. Um, Live journalism, uh, at its core, it's uh, exploring a different medium that's always been there but has been, in my opinion, underutilized, which is physical space and one-on-one human interaction. So it's not just a journalist going out there and meeting sources in person, reporting in communities, but actually being in the community, putting on a show, telling their stories in a room full of people, and then being able to create dialogue out of that space. So it can take a variety of forms, and it already has across the world. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about those different ways it's been manifesting itself. So... The first story that comes to mind, I mean, there are really important stories being told in live journalism. There, there's ones where they're talking about, you know, the issue of, for example, there is one story that was going around the UK and they were talking about, uh, you know, uh, women in abuse shelters and uh, actually a journalist working with uh, someone who kind of came out of that system to create a performance uh, for people um, who are both advocates or policymakers and actually like creating a dialogue around this huge report they were making. And it was more than just a it was more than just a talk or standing up on stage and and you know giving a speech. It was actually someone taking you through their life, through visuals, through storytelling. Yeah, so it, it can be something really heavy like that. But another appealing part of this is that it's also very fun. Like there are, you know, front of book pieces in a magazine. Uh, the one the one that always pops up in my mind was when I went to um, uh, see a show by Pop-Up Magazine, and they had a show about 
uh, they had one performance where a person said that they interviewed someone who works at the uh, helpline of uh, alcohol companies. And then so they just played a bunch of recordings they get from people. And usually the recordings they get are people who are inebriated and they're either really happy or they're either very upset. Mm -hmm. And it's a very entertaining job. But, you know, and it's kind of a silly story that you don't usually think about. But the way that they brought it on stage, the way that they put um, subtitles and text that kind of like popped and performed the words that were being spoken, it just heightened the enjoyability of it. It made it feel like... Um, it was more than just, you know, listening to uh, a recording. It was like you were experiencing this person talk and you experienced a journalist kind of sharing their experiences as well uh, in uh, exploring that space of customer service lines and the uniqueness of it in uh, the industry of, uh, yeah, customer yeah. service and alcohol companies. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's super interesting. And, and when you first, like, heard about the word live journalism, what made you want to get involved? So uh, the story of getting involved in it actually began at Ryerson in FCAD. Um, I was part of this uh, super co- creative impact super course happening here where they bring students in from different disciplines to work on a project together, a project that's brought to them by an organization outside of the school. So in this case, it was Stitched, which was run by assistant professor Sonia Fata. Um, and so she basically said, we have this project. The task is to create uh, a type of journalism that uses aspects of uh, performance arts and theater. And I was just thinking, I always wanted to do theater. I really like doing things live. I, I love entertaining and performing. I really wanted to just see what it's all about. Uh, shortly after I, wa- I got into there and I started with a team, I went to see a performance of Pop-Up Magazine, which is the pioneer of live magazine uh, of live journalism. Uh, and they, they were founded, I believe, maybe over over 10 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. They've been the catalyst for a lot of people, a lot of these companies that have been spreading around Europe. They say the same thing. We saw a pop-up show. We wanted to make it our own. Uh, And I guess that's my story as well. Cool. Going off of that, um, what separates live journalism from a theatrical performance? So theater itself exists within a very, I would say, in a... as explorative and interesting and like creative that area is, it's already still within its own model, with its own traditions, its own audiences. Uh, it's so established. And what journalism, live journalism is, is it's rooted, it's anchored in journalism, not in theater. Mm-hmm. So there are types of uh, theater that have explored journalism before, uh, but th- those are called verbatim theater and documentary theater. And those are quite different because those are people in theater using the tools of journalists to uh, to, to further their um, their goals as theater performers. So for them, they will, for example, uh, they've told me experiences of they interview somebody and then they actually have to repeat word for word what the person told them. Not only that, but act out their movements and their facial expressions and deeply understand who they are as a person. And in that way, I thought it was fascinating because you're actually getting into a source's reality and being as empathetic as you can with a source. You know, as a journalist, we just take their words and put it on the page. There you actually become them and you feel Mm -hmm. the judgments of others on you as you say these words. That was really interesting. (laughs) That's really cool. Mm -hmm. But that's not what this is about. Uh, Live journalism uh, is more about taking journalism as a foundation in terms of all the amazing stuff about it, uh, the, the, the uh, research, the rigor and research, the, the storytelling, the compelling characters, uh, all grounded in reality and done with integrity, and then stitching in 
or layering in, uh, you know, uh, lessons that we've learned in theater, in performance arts, in in lighting, sound, projection, all which are their own type of art form and have their own artists working in the space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what does this form of journalism provide that reading an article or watching a documentary can't? So, I mean, I'd, I'd compare it to... Uh, why people uh, go to see live music when you can just listen to an album. Uh, It really is something that you are willing to pay $40 just to have an experience you call your own and that you feel uh, uniquely in that space and time versus um, you don't really want to pay for something you're used to getting for free online. Uh, You know, you have less value attached to it. I, I believe that, you know, for example, you can have a surprise and a surprise, a, a guest appearance on an album that's like, whoa, that's awesome. And a guest appearance on stage, it's like, wow, this one moment we have this person come on as a surprise. I mean, that that's something that happened, like, for example, Live Magazine in France. Uh, last year they had uh, President Macron come on stage all of a sudden as a surprise. And the audience was like, I did not realize with my $40 ticket we were going to see a special speech by the president that will never be repeated out of this room. Mm-hmm. Um, that, for me, is a core difference. Yeah, and that's really interesting. And I guess, I mean, I'm experiencing this myself and turning my own reporting into a live journalism performance. <laughs> but what are some of the stories that are a good way to present live journalism, I guess? So in my research so far, I'm, you know, this is an emerging media. This is something where the reason I'm in it is that, is that the rules aren't really that defined yet. Uh, but what has been found so far in my research, uh, uh, I have been doing research on different live journalism companies. Uh, I'm going to be doing a trip in April where I actually go and I research the models and talk to audiences and figure out how all these companies are putting it together. And so far in my research, I found that the thing, the stories that work best are when the journalist has some sort of personal connection to it. Not to say that it's just a first-person narrative story, but it is something where the journalist can be a human within the whole performance, mm-hmm. be, reflect on how it affected them as a person. And, and what this does is it allows the audience to see the journalist as a person, not in a way that makes you not trust them, but in a way that allows you to see that they are just a person trying their best. Definitely. And I think that's something that we all kind of need to share as journalists that yeah as much as we are still just people we're also people who really believe in something and work really hard at it too yeah and and on that note like in terms of the ethics of of creating a live journalism performance what are the some of the extra things that you might have to consider when you're presenting work like that so this is yeah i did a couple of focus groups last year uh putting together uh the first performance and something i love and hate about journalism is that they care so much about the integrity of the medium uh that's what makes it such an important medium but that's what also makes it so hesitant to change and to experiment i believe sometimes and so one of the things that came up in all these discussions is that how do we make sure that this powerful medium and this is a powerful medium this is something where uh, people, when they hear a story uh, told to them for 12 minutes, can bring them to tears or could completely change their worldview. Uh, much like I'm sure with Adrian, you guys talked about the ability to have empathy uh, yeah. with VR. This is very much another empathetic type of medium. In the wrong hands could be dangerous. So if we create this really powerful uh, medium for storytelling, what potential is there for a media company that does not have the best intentions uh, for its audience, that is really strong with rhetoric, really great at entertaining, mm. but the entertainment 
eclipses the integrity of the journalism? How do we anchor journalism in it and make sure it stays there across this as it grows? That for me personally is the biggest concern I have. I assume like it's been done successfully in the past with like pop-up magazine and, and live magazine and stuff like I that. I mean, so, so far we have had uh, all these all these great magazines run by awesome journalists doing great work. What happens when there is the less than admirable uh, editorial teams coming on board? What happens if right. certain publications start using this as a tool to push political agenda. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's just something I, I would maybe have concern about. Um, why do you think this type of journalism or this type of innovation in journalism is needed right now? I'll be the first to admit I'm a newbie in the game in journalism. My background is more in entrepreneurialism, uh, inter uh, international development, community development. I come from all these different backgrounds. And when I was trying to find my place in this space, I was asking myself, A, what really excites me? B, what do I see as hitting me in terms of this could actually really work and see what is something that I would genuinely want to listen to myself or I would want to engage with myself. And I think those are important questions that I don't hear enough being asked by people trying to innovate in this space. In my journey trying out all the different types of journalism there is throughout my master's here at Ryerson, this was the first one that hit all three of those marks for me. Um, it excites me. I went to the show and I was like, when can I see that? How can I watch this once a month? Like it was, yeah. you know, that exciting for me. And also the fact that I wanted to go continually, even though I paid, you know, 30, 40 bucks for my ticket shows that I'm willing to pay for it too. And that's, you know, I think that's a key indicator as well. So I think it's asking the right questions. I also think beyond just its feasibility as a model, the importance of actually connecting people together off of their phones. How do we not catch up and instead take a step back and regain some control over this medium? Because, you know, journalists, I feel like, are flooded in, in a stream of um, competition on social media streams. How do we, how do we find our, how do we navigate a way to keep our integrity intact while still being competitive in these spaces? Mm -hmm. And I personally think it's difficult. That's a very difficult question to ask. And I said, instead, we should ask, how do we find people when they're in the right state of mind and engage with them on things that are really important for them to learn about? Yeah. So on that note, Adam, how did you get involved in creating your own live journalism startup? So, um, you know, being in um, being in Ryerson, I was really ex uh, I was actually I was an intern at the Transmedia Zone here uh, for the two years I was doing my master's. And I got to see all these awesome startups. Um, and, you know, it was people who were in the creative field also starting their own projects and then it, it really, I actually pitched uh, another business a year prior and didn't get in. And I realized that, you know, you really need to have a quality idea that can prove itself as a mark with market viability. And then so when I pitched, uh, I realized, you know what, I'm going to pitch uh, this company. Um, and I really want to continue, you know, on the partnership I have with Sonia. And so I talked with, uh, with uh, Professor Sonia Fata, and then we uh, kind of agreed that it would be a great idea if uh, we worked together to put this startup together and then so uh, I applied for it got it all going uh, and you know I would also have the support of uh, someone who's really you know understands the Canadian journalism uh, ecosystem who has a bit more of journalistic weight uh, in their in their background uh, you know to to complement you know, what I have as entrepreneurial community development and events experience mm -hmm. and uh, decided that might be a good mix to get this thing off the ground with. Amazing. 
On top of wanting to bring live journalism here, I also want to evolve the model in a way that focuses on local communities. Um, I do see that there is not even just because of the the closure of, of local news publications uh, and you know a lack of actual news about our communities coming out. Uh, that's not the only issue for me. The issue for me is you know being from a far out region of the city of Toronto in Scarborough, growing up not really seeing my reality or my stories reflected um, except through like crime. You know, uh, I. I want to make the journalism I wish I saw when I was a kid and I wish would inspire me to to want to be a journalistic storyteller as I grew up. And for me, this is a medium where in Toronto, we have a city of very separate neighborhoods um, that feel in isolation of each other. Uh, it's important for me as we put our shows together that they have a sense of creating a collective identity of what Toronto is and it, that is inclusive. And you called it Talk Media. And we end up calling it Talk Media uh, because, I mean, you know, sometimes we just need to talk. Yeah. I, in my idea, it's, it's, I mean, Talk Media for me, it's more about, yeah, media, it's not talking at you, it's talking with you uh, and talking the back and forth. I think that's what we need more of and and not through our fingertips. I guess like how do you do you see news organizations moving forward like getting into these live entertainment spaces? Well, that's the thing I want to do actually is be a channel for news organizations to do that. Right. Uh, a big part of my business model right now is focusing on how do I create you know, strategic partnerships with media organizations that want to find new ways to reach their audiences and reach new audiences. How do they find new revenue streams? How do they, uh, you know, collect their incredible resources, which are um, these journalists that are known for doing amazing work with the people who love their work and, and build those relationships and make it even stronger or create meaningful dialogue around them? And yes, we have like festivals, we have panel discussions, but I'm talking about how do we take these journalists who are already amazing storytellers who work at these or, uh, companies and allow them to take their whole style and everything of storytelling to to the stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want to be part of that facilitation process with the company. Well, thank you so much for being here, Adam. Thank you. Yeah, it was great chatting with you all. So that's it for our show. If you liked our podcast today, let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Ryerson Review and on Instagram at The Ryerson Review. Our podcast was produced by our editor, Ashley Fraser, and myself, Tanya Sarek. Special thanks to technical help from Daniela Alaru, and thanks to our guests this week, Adam Chen and Adrian Ma. Our executive producer this week is Janice Neal. See you next time.